Curiosity rolls on across Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Mars Science Laboratory project scientist Ashwin Vasavada is back to tell us what that 10-year-old rover has been up to. Discoveries, beautiful images, and enormous amounts of data from its 10 instruments. Curiosity has also lately been paving the way for the humans that will someday walk on the red planet. Later we'll check in with the Society's chief scientist. Bruce Betts has lots to tell us about, including a Venus transit that you did not, repeat, did not miss. There's still time for you to help us make Planetary Radio better. You'll find our easy, quick questionnaire at planetary.org survey. I'm very grateful to all of you who've already completed it and to those who are about to. We'll be shutting it down in a few days, so we hope to hear from you very soon. There haven't been a lot of spectacular full-frame images of the International Space Station since space shuttles stopped visiting. This makes the lovely photo taken recently from a Crew Dragon spacecraft even more special. You'll find it at the top of the January 14 edition of the Downlink, where there's coverage of the trouble Perseverance has had with one of the samples it has attempted to collect. Some pebbles got in the way of the mechanism. We just learned that the rover is simply going to dump them and take another sample from the same rock, so no big deal? NASA has a new chief scientist, and it may signal a re-energized focus on Earth science and especially climate change. Catherine Calvin is an accomplished climate scientist. I hope we'll get to talk with her on Planetary Radio before long, and I also hope to bring back her predecessor, longtime friend of the show, Jim Green. As always, you'll find much more at planetary.org slash downlink. The Jet Propulsion Lab's Ashwin Vasavada served for many years as Deputy Project Scientist for the Mars Science Laboratory. He stepped up to Project Scientist when John Grotzinger returned to teaching and research at Caltech. That was in 2015. As you'll hear, Curiosity is still going strong. On January 18th, too late to include the news in my conversation with Ashwin, we learned about the rover's detection of a carbon isotope that is consistent with life. There are possible non-biological explanations, but this is one more step toward that ultimate goal. By the way, we've got a link to this story and many other great resources on this week's episode page at planetary.org radio. Ashwin, welcome back to Planetary Radio for this uh, check-in on the Curiosity mission, the Mars Science Laboratory mission. In your honor and the mission's honor, I'm wearing my Planet Fest Curiosity t-shirt, the one that says, Curiosity Knows No Bounds. It's a nine-and-a-half-year-old t-shirt because, well, we just passed the 10th anniversary of Curiosity's launch last November, and it will have been exploring Mars for 10 years this coming August. Absolutely amazing. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. It's, it's wonderful to be here. And yeah, I still can't get over it myself that we're doing so well, you know, almost 10 years into the surface mission. It's wonderful. And I bet you're thankful for that uh, RTG on the rear end of uh, the rover, right? You don't have to worry about dust. and At least that's one thing you don't have to worry about as much. Yeah, it's true. And fortunately, 
It's always been this case where you don't have to worry about dust killing you immediately, but you know you have this gradual slow death over the long term. Right, right. And uh, we thought actually that would catch up with us by now, but fortunately we found ways to be very efficient with the energy we use and we've maximized what we can do and extended the life of the mission, even with the declining RTG. I am not surprised that uh, that team has found ways to stretch the energy budget. And you're in the same boat as, you know, you're in good company. You've got Voyager out there uh, still struggling along uh, past the uh, the uh, outer planets. What is the status of the rover uh, overall, its cameras, its instruments? Doing quite well. One thing I always like to make sure our bosses at headquarters, you know, NASA headquarters understand is that we have 10 <laughs> very highly functioning instruments to this day, which again, I'm just very grateful for and and never would have expected to be in such a good shape 10 years later. All of our instruments are functioning very well. A few minor capabilities have been lost. You know, one thing that is probably most apparent is we've lost our ability to measure winds, Uh, but Mm. we have a meteorology suite that does a lot of things besides just winds. So we're continuing to measure the weather in other ways. And from the rover perspective, I think the best way to describe it is that we've overcome a lot of different challenges. And fortunately, there hasn't been anything that's been so severe that it's really decreased our capability. We lost the ability to drill for over a year. But as you know, man, what a great feat by the engineering team here to find a new way to drill to overcome the loss of that motor. So that's been the story. There's been little well, sometimes more than little <laughs> problems with things <laughs> like a motor or with the wheels or the with wheels. the memory card, you know, chips on the rover, that sort of thing. But it, in every case, it hasn't been like a fatal error, obviously. And we've been able to find ways to work around them. So the rover and instruments are doing great. I love to start with um, that intersection of art and science. And we got a good example of that not too long ago. There was this uh, panoramic view of a, of a Martian landscape that in one image captured both morning and evening on the red planet. And we'll put it up on this week's episode page, planetary.org slash radio. Did you find that as, as stunning as uh, so many of the rest of us did? Yeah. And it's just jaw dropping. And it was so unexpected for us to um, have that reaction, I think, and for that to have worked so well, not only with our team, but With the entire world, we got so much great feedback on that. You know, the story behind that is we were climbing up, we've been climbing up this very tall mountain, and we kind of crested a little part, a little local hill, and looked back and saw we had this great view of the crater floor, and it's a very clear time of year. So I asked one of our um, engineering camera leads, his name is Doug Ellison. You probably know him. I do know Doug, yes. (laughs) Very happy member of the team. Exactly, yeah. So I asked Doug, I said, can you take take navigation pictures all the time, but let's take a nice panorama looking backwards that is at the highest quality that the engineering cameras can can do because those are spectacular cameras, but they never get to show off. Our navigation images are compressed like crazy for efficiency reasons. And so he said, sure, I'll take some pictures. And by the way, I want to take two, one in the morning, one in the evening. I said, okay, whatever. I don't care. Do it. And but he didn't tell me why. And he had already formulated this idea of how that might look. Uh, and so, you know, Doug gets the credit and really made a wonderful visualization. Yeah. Move over Jim Bell, you know, who I call the uh, <laughs> the Ansel Adams of Mars. This is really that kind of a that kind of a shot. It's also amazing to look at the the two 
original shots where, you know, the lighting has changed because the sun has moved to the other side of the sky. It, that and that wonderful colorization, there there really are, as you said, uh, jaw-dropping. So where are you now? Obviously still climbing Mount Sharp, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and we'll continue to climb till we can climb no more. Uh, Gale Crater and Mount Sharp have been such a wonderful place for us to explore. We felt when the site was selected that the advantage of going to a place like Mount Sharp is that you climb a large mountain with layers that change in their appearance and their composition and therefore record a, a varying geologic history, and that it would be a gift that would keep on giving. And that's certainly been the case. Every year we climb to a new level on Mount Sharp, we're in a different part of Mars ancient history and exploring a different environment. And the place we're at now is a very important point in the mission. We're at a transition between layers that have a lot of clay minerals and layers that have sulfate minerals. And we can get into the importance of that later, but that's kind of where we're at. And it also corresponds to a change from relatively flat topography to a topography that's characterized by a lot of buttes and mesas and hills. So the surroundings have just gotten very spectacular too, as we've gotten into this local area. So this area that you've just left behind, the, the so-called Murray Formation, has special meaning for a lot of us at the Planetary Society, and I'm sure for a lot of you at JPL as well, because named after our co-founder, the, the former JPL director, Bruce Murray, what did that formation tell us about Mars, this, this so-called clay unit? Sure. Uh, these names really are kind of hallowed ones in planetary science. Mount Sharp is named after uh, Robert Sharp, who worked alongside Bruce Murray at, at Caltech in the early days of, you know, when planetary science didn't really have a name. It, it was just, <laughs> yeah. uh, right, people people coming from different fields and applying, you know, physics and geology and, uh, you know, terrestrial fields, building cameras to, to strap onto these JPL spacecraft. Anyway, I could go on about that. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yes, we named the package of geologic layers at the base of Mount Sharp, uh, we call that the Murray Formation. We've been exploring that now for probably about seven of the nine years that we've been on, on site there at Gale Crater. Uh, and so far, there hasn't been a reason to uh, for the geologists to say that we've left that Murray Formation. It's all been very mm. similar and all been dominantly uh, layers laid down in ancient lakes, which has been wonderful for our goal of trying to understand whether Mars ever was habitable. The fact that we have Hundreds of meters of lake bed sediments all stacked up, you know, in this mountain means that Mars was habitable for a long time. But lately, we found that things have been changing in a fairly significant way. Uh, the lake bed sediments are disappearing and being replaced now by sediments that were laid down in more dynamic environments, maybe at the shores of lakes or within rivers. It's been so persistent now that looking back over the last year or so, uh, the geologists on our team who take care of this kind of uh, mapping and classification have decided that uh, the Murray Formation uh, ended, and now we're in what we're calling the Carolyn Shoemaker Formation. Oh, and I'm sure she would have been quite honored. Carolyn Shoemaker, of course, great explorer and scientist in her own right, and the uh, the widow uh, of Eugene Shoemaker, who uh, was was quite a pioneer. So. With the the Murray Formation formation, the clay unit left behind, and you're now in this transitional area, and you're seeing a lot of these sulfates, right? Which uh, 
have become, you know, one of the one of the features of the Martian surface that um, that weren't expected not that many years ago, right? I, I mean, Viking wasn't expecting them, uh, and yet it um, got in the way of some of those old Viking experiments. But they tell us a lot, don't they? We think they do. You know, having the benefit of these orbiter missions behind us. Uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and uh, the Mars Express a European mission, they mapped the planet and discovered this rich mineralogy over the surface. And as you said, uh, one thing that they've seen are, are lots of sulfates, and they tend to uh, overlie the clay uh, mineral deposits in many areas. This has caused people to wonder whether there was a planet-wide transition from an environment that formed clay minerals to one that formed sulfates which probably would correspond to a wet environment going into a dry environment. We're the first mission that can really explore that transition up close and personal on the surface and figure out if it really does correspond to a climate change within Gale and extrapolating that uh, to the rest of Mars. Maybe uh, this is evidence for that big transition that we all think happened early on in Mars history when it went from this wet planet, maybe warm planet, to the dry planet it is today. Isn't that one of these big questions that you're hoping to answer? I mean, not just how wet was Mars, but when did that transition take place in its long history? Yeah, uh, when did it take place? And and then, you know, the benefit of what we can do at the surface is really see the detail of it. Was it a gradual transition that occurred over millions of years? Did it, uh, you know, by expectations kind of on when you look at a trust, the terrestrial record of climate changes, it probably wasn't just a, a black and white change. It probably came and went a few times, it wet, dry, wet, dry, and then finally dry, dry, dry. You know, we'll be able to look at that level of detail about how, how did, you know, what's the nature of that climate uh, change on Mars? When did it occur and how did it occur? So as we look at your data, the data from MRO, the data that's now arriving from Perseverance, your, your sister rover up there in Jezero Crater, do we now... No, I mean, sure, we found the water a long time ago. We know at least we found the evidence of the past water. Do we now know just how wet Mars was if you look back far enough? I, I think where the mystery is, is how did the planet get in a state where it could be so wet? <laughs> so um, we are quite convinced now that Mars was very wet. I mean, there's lots of evidence for um, rivers that flowed on Mars for extended periods of time. It wasn't just an ephemeral thing. In other words, we know that because we see deltas that poured sediment into standing bodies of water like lakes and the the, the size of these deltas and the all the meandering of the streams that occurred, you know, give us a sense that things were happening for a long time. And then you get to Gale Crater where we now have 300 plus meters thick of lake sediments. That tells you also that water was there for quite a long time and rivers were flowing, bringing sediment for a long time. Where the mystery seems to be now in the community is finding a way to explain how the atmosphere was able to retain the warmth necessary to have stable water on Mars for such a long time. Um, the sun was fainter back in the early period of Mars history, uh, and Mars probably never had too thick of an atmosphere. Uh, so mm. you didn't have a lot of chance for a really uh, extreme greenhouse warming to keep it warm. That's one of the mysteries. We don't really have climate models yet for early Mars that are consistent with the geology that we see. I think before we're done, I'll come back to that topic of uh, the other spacecraft that are exploring above and on 
uh, the Red Planet. Um, but I'll leave that for a little bit later. There's another video that I think we'll link to from from this week's episode page. It was narrated by your your deputy project scientist, uh, Abigail Freeman. Uh, it's a tour of a panorama captured by Curiosity last summer. It seems to be right in line with what you're talking about, this looking at how and when the climate changed on Mars, and once again comes back to these these chemical elements, uh, not elements, chemical compounds called sulfates. Could you can you describe them a, a little bit more? Sure. Clay minerals form when water interacts with rock over a long period of time, and actually changes the mineralogy, alters the mineralogy of the. Um, basaltic minerals that, that Mars formed with and turned some of them into clays. These sulfates, on the other hand, might form more like salts that you might find when a, when a lake dries up. Uh, so one possibility is that the sulfates that we're going to find in the sulfate unit above us now are what's called evaporites, minerals that are left behind because they precipitate out of water that's evaporating. It also could be water that was precipitated when groundwater was flowing through uh, rocks underground. But generally, you might uh, associate these sulfates with a drying environment, less water available than what would have been around when the clay minerals formed. So there's this kind of a wetting to drying that we expect to find. Uh, we don't know the exact nature of the sulfates yet. That's one of the things that we're hoping to find. Uh, how exactly did these sulfates form? Uh, and did they form uh, when the sediments were being laid down, or did they form later as water was circulating through those sediments at, at a different time? I'll be a little bit uh, parochial here and and think of a couple of features we have here in Southern California. And and I, I'm wondering if these are decent parallels to what we may be seeing on Mars. Uh, the Salton Sea, that closed off inland body of water that uh, is terribly salty, mm-hmm. but also, and I forget what it's called, but it's that part of Death Valley it's the lowest part of Death Valley, and it has these these insane, uh, surreal formations that I am told are made of salts uh, that you don't want to fall on. They're they're kind of sharp and abrasive, but they are an amazing thing to see. Is is this the kind of structure or or composition that we may be talking about? It's a possibility that these could be you know these macroscopic salt crystals like. I think you're talking about like Badwater or the Devil's Golf Course, places like that. Yes, that's it. Thank you. That would be spectacular if we, you know, rolled around the corner and we saw features like that. (laughs) And that would be very distinctive uh, in terms of telling us how these things form, that they really did form uh, as as minerals precipitated from uh, drying pools of water uh, where the salinity increased, increased, and you form crystals and all that. We haven't found anything like that yet. And it's possible that it could be what we find, but it also could be that the, the salts formed in less obvious ways, um, maybe just in the spaces between sand grains in the rock as cements formed uh, you know, within the rock. So not as big, thick layers of salt like, like in the places you described, but more as cements within the rocks as groundwater circulated and precipitated the salts in those spaces between the grains. Sticking with these salts for a, a little bit longer, I, there was one, a story that I saw came out a few months ago, I think, uh, about these salts, sulfates, and how they may have, in a sense, I think it was referred to as rewriting the history of the the geology in that area, because they may have changed the nature of the clay, which is also present. Sure. One thing that we've really been impressed with 
about Gale Crater is how much change has occurred after the sediments were initially laid down. You have a lake and the lake is depositing silt on the ground, forming layers, but then that lake goes away, but we still have groundwater circulating underground. And that groundwater can do a lot of changes to what was originally deposited. And that process is called diagenesis. It's a term that geologists use to describe changes that occurred later in the history after the original deposition. The issue with that is, you know, you'd like to go to a place like Gale Crater and interpret uh, how everything formed. But these later changes through diagenesis can overwrite what you're seeing. They can, the changes can be so profound, they can erase the original history. And so in some cases, they've erased our ability to actually see distinct layers, uh, the kinds of sedimentary layers that tell us whether a river once flowed or whether a dune passed by. Uh, the diagenesis can change the texture of the rock so much that that history is erased. Hmm. Another way that these changes can happen is chemically. And, and this is the one that you're referring to where we have the clay bearing unit. And then later in Mars history, uh, more sediments were piled on top of those clay bearing rocks, including ones that have all the sulfates. Uh, and so one hypothesis is that then groundwater, you know, mixed in some of that, those precipitates from the sulfate uh, unit and it, the water flowed down through fractures and got to the clay bearing unit and started changing the rocks of the clay bearing unit. So now what we're seeing in the clay bearing unit has been altered uh, by the rocks that formed later above them. It makes it challenging to interpret what's going on when you have this secondary process that's been overriding everything. On the other hand, it makes the history quite fascinating to explore. And so we have this area in the clay bearing unit where there's a big standing ridge that we call the Vera Rubin Ridge and this deep trough where the clay minerals are. And you'd think by looking at a trough next to a big ridge that they must have very different rocks to form them. Why is one a ridge and why is one a valley that gets eroded downward? And it turns out that the rocks formed all in the same way in lakes a long time ago. But it's this action of, of uh, later diagenesis that hardened the ridge and kept the clay uh, rocks quite soft. Wild speculation on my part here, a absolutely non-geologist. But can this be in any way compared to the formation of the beautiful mesas we see across the southwest of, uh, of the United States, where somehow this big column of of harder material is left in place where everything else has been washed or worn away. I think it, it can create that sort of thing, but we see uh, also in Gale Crater uh, things that are probably even more directly analogous to what you're saying. So, huh. um, you know, even after the clays and the sulfates were laid down and then some period of time went by and Mount Sharp formed into the shape of a mountain, then later on, sand dunes came across and, and coated the surface with sand and that hardened into rock. So you, you kind of put this shielding on these soft sediments below of this hard sandstone. And then that sandstone got eroded in places and left uh, towers because you, now you have this little cap of hard sandstone covering up soft rock below it. And the soft rock keeps eroding away. But wherever the little cap is left behind, you end up forming a little tower. And that's a lot of what happens in the Southwest. And that's what happens in this wonderful place we drove through called the, the Murray Buttes. You know why I have a big smile is because what you're talking about is just more evidence that we've been getting for years, and certainly curiosity has added to it, that Mars is not going to be simple to figure out. It's a dynamic place with an incredibly rich 
history. Yeah, th- amen to that. <laughs> that is what we've been <laughs> learning. <laughs> you know, and it's the history is so diverse and any rock you're looking at, you can't just go to a place that's three and a half billion years old and immediately understand the history three and a half billion years ago, because a rock that is three and a half billion years old also has had everything happen to it in the last three and a half billion years since then. You know, <laughs> So there's been a lot of geology, a lot of time that's affected that rock. So you sort of have to understand its whole history and man, piecing together the history of everything that's happened in Gale Crater has been so wonderfully rich but also made it a very challenging problem. Ashwin Vasavada will be right back with more from Mars, including the Curiosity rover's confirmation that Mars itself may someday protect astronauts from radiation. Hi again, it's Casey Dreyer, the chief advocate here at the Planetary Society. Our 2022 Day of Action is set for March 8th. This is your chance to advocate on behalf of space science and exploration. If you've heard us talk about how effective and just personally rewarding our past days of action have been, this event is for you. Learn how to participate in this virtual online experience by visiting planetary.org slash dayofaction. If you live in the United States, we'll book your congressional meetings for you and also provide you expert training so you can be the best advocate possible. If you live outside the U.S., you can still make your voice heard on March 8th. It all starts at planetary.org slash dayofaction. Join us as we speak out for space. Even as these salts or sulfates are, are, are making it, making your life a little more difficult as you try to understand that long history, I read quotes from you and your predecessor, uh, John Grutzinger, about what they may have to say about the search for evidence of past life and and how life might have been supported. So what do you and and John mean by that? Yeah, you know, there's a positive and a negative. Uh, You know, the point you raised earlier is that sometimes these uh, fluids that percolate down into fractures and then cause these diagenetic changes into lower layers can erase the kind of history that we're looking for. They can erase the clay minerals that uh, we we associate with lake beds and that tell us that there was a wet environment that could could have maybe supported life at that time. Mm. If those clays are gone, we lose some of that evidence to understand the possibility for life. But on the other hand, when you get these fluids that have all these chemicals that they picked up from one environment and they transport those chemicals down to a different environment, that creates a lot of chemical diversity underground which is the kind of thing that is associated with life. It provides energy for life. And that's one thing that John has really been impressing on all of us in the mission is that, you know, it's not just the lakes that we should be excited about, but all this groundwater circulating below and carrying chemicals from one place to another, it creates a great possibility of a biosphere underground that outlived the lakes possibly for hundreds of millions of years. Gale Crater was not only habitable when the lakes were there, but probably for long afterwards. And we have heard speculation before on this program about that possibility that life once again found a way, perhaps, on Mars and dug down where it could still find water and stuff to eat and maybe also was shielded from that horrible radiation uh, up on the surface. Uh, What's it going to take to, to find out what may have been or my goodness, might still be down there. (laughs) Well, um, you know, Curiosity continues to explore the habitability. 
Our mission was to get to Mars to figure out what kinds of environments existed in the ancient past and whether they were the kinds of environments that life could have thrived in. And I think, you know, we found more than we ever expected in the positive side of that column. Uh, and that was intended, you know, Curiosity was intended to be the predecessor for missions like Perseverance and Mars Sample Return, you know, all the missions that would follow, to go to these environments, these habitable environments, and then explore for actual signatures of past life. Perseverance is doing that now in uh, Jezero Crater, both with the instruments it has on board, but even more so by collecting samples uh, for return to Earth. We're excited that um, everything Curiosity was hoped to find, we found, and that has you know, set the stage wonderfully for the next decade of bringing rocks back from Mars and really answering the question whether those habitable environments actually supported living organisms. Always comes back to sample return, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, let's look up uh, from uh, the surface of Mars. Uh, I mentioned to you uh, before we started recording that I had uh, Mark Lemon of the Space Science Institute on the show last June, and we talked about some more pretty pictures that your spacecraft or your, your rover took there on Mars by looking up at the Martian sky and seeing clouds, really beautiful clouds overhead. In fact, you could even see the clouds passing by. We'll, we'll put a link to that past show up as well. And you talked about that meteorological package that Curiosity carries. Uh, how big a part of the mission is that? And how is that portion going, looking, looking up at the sky? It's often probably overshadowed by the habitability work that we do, but we do have some pretty important objectives in terms of understanding the meteorology of Mars and the cycles of water and dust, all the good stuff that happens on Mars today, as opposed to three and a half billion years ago. Uh, and so we have a very capable meteorology uh, package on board, and we also have uh, cameras that, of course, we use for geology all the time, but then we point upwards and take pictures of clouds. Uh, and dust in the sky. We have some great results over the years of now observing more than four Mars annual cycles. A Mars year is about twice an Earth year. So we, you know, our nine years on Mars converts to about four years in Mars years. But as you say, you know, one of the more dramatic things was just in the last year or two when we were taking some pictures at twilight, which we don't often do when we look up at the sky. Uh, and all of a sudden, there was all these beautiful clouds in the sky. We, we take a lot of pictures of clouds over the mission during the day. But this was after the sun had set. So not exactly the time you'd go and look for clouds. But these are this special type of clouds called noctilucent clouds, very high altitude, where they're still lit by the sun, uh, even when the sun's gone down from the perspective of the rover. And so they're very bright against the sky. Not only were they bright, but they were colorful uh, as... Mm. Your listeners probably heard from Mark. Uh, these are the kind of clouds that are called not only noctilucent, uh, but they're luminescent. But they have these uh, mother of pearl type uh, colors to them, pastel colors. And that tells us a lot about how they form and what they're uh, made out of. And we think they're very high, high altitude at the altitudes, probably when where only carbon dioxide would freeze and form the ice particles. Oh, so those are probably carbon dioxide uh, yeah, or dry ice particles? Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating because carbon dioxide is what Mars' atmosphere is made out of. So you have the actual atmosphere condensing a little bit, you know, up at uh, 60 kilometers height or so. They are gorgeous pictures. So this region that you are headed toward, I know it's been given a name that means a lot to you uh, and the team. Could you say something about Rafael Navarro? 
Sure. Yeah. Rafael Navarro was a member of our SAM team, which is uh, an instrument that is the one that does uh, the processing analysis of the samples that we take from uh, from our drill. He, he came from a, a university in Mexico and just a, a wonderful, generous scientist who worked with the team the entire time Curiosity was on Mars and made a number of interesting discoveries uh, you know, using that SAM data. Uh, and he passed, you know, a, a year ago or so, and we saw a really wonderful mountain that was kind of the gateway to the upper regions on Mount Sharp. We had to cross in front of this mountain and go around it to get where we are now uh, at the base of the sulfate unit. And so we thought it was just very fitting uh, to call that mountain the gateway to the rest of our exploration on Curiosity, the Rafael Navarro Mountain. Another terrific tribute. Mm. Using the spectroscopy that was done by the orbiters previously, we can map out on Mount Shop where the clay minerals are and where the, where the sulfate minerals are. And we're in this region that's sort of no man's land in between the two, which means we're seeing lots of changes, as you might expect. We saw this change from the Murray Formation to the Carolyn Shoemaker Formation. So in other words, a change from lakes to these more dynamic environments. And then now we're seeing the clay minerals disappear. We've drilled a series of holes and we saw less clay each time. And so the obvious question then is, are the sulfates appearing? And so far, we haven't found nearly as much as we thought we might. Hmm. So we've seen the clays disappear, but we're still waiting for the sulfates to appear. And that's been an interesting mystery too. Uh, we found little hints of sulfates in some of the diagenetic features, these features that have formed later after the original deposition, little nodules, concretions, fractures filled with minerals. Those seem to contain the sulfates, but we still expect that we're going to find a lot more uh, higher up uh, because the orbital data tells us that there should be hundreds of meters of thick of rocks enriched in sulfates. So safe to say more surprises ahead. I think so. Uh, more surprises ahead. We also are going to be looking not only at the sulfate unit, but even the layer that formed after the sulfate unit, uh, which is this sandstone layer that you and I were discussing earlier, and also debris that has come down maybe in, in, in rivers and streams from higher on Mount Sharp. There's a channel we're going to explore that's filled with boulders and other debris, which might give us a chance to uh, see what the rocks are like from much higher up on the mountain that we may never get to. And, that, and not only that, but to actually explore what might have been once a very fast flowing river or debris avalanche from, the, from higher up on the mountain. So lots of exciting stuff ahead. I told you earlier that I would want to ask you about uh, the company that Curiosity keeps uh, both on Mars and, uh, and above Mars. And, and some of them have come up already, Perseverance, of course. But I wonder if you want to say anything else about how Curiosity fits into this, what has become a pretty massive program of exploration and now an international program of exploration across Mars. And I, you know, I'm thinking of Insight and the, the Chinese lander and rover Perseverance, of course, but um, also maybe what's to come, like ExoMars with its drill that's hopefully going to take us deeper than we've ever gone. You know, it's wonderful that NASA has a Mars exploration strategy. And we talked about that briefly already, that we have a very specific place, we being Curiosity, in this long series of missions that went from, you know, mapping Mars and looking for signs of water from orbit to then exploring on the surface with spirit and opportunity and then curiosity, understanding habitability. So not just water, but habitability. 
and then ultimately getting at searching for actual signs of life with perseverance and sample return. So we're kind of in that, uh, that thread of the Mars program. But of course, there's Mars is a planet. You know, there's so much else you want to learn about it. And so it's exciting that there's missions like InSight, where you can learn about the interior of Mars, uh, which we can say very little about as a rover on the surface. We're excited that other nations, other space agencies are successfully landing at Mars, uh, uh, like the Chinese uh, rover. Uh, and then other orbiters from India, from UAE, from so many countries now are exploring Mars. It's a wonderful place and and so much still to learn that I'm glad that we can do so many complementary things. A sample return is going to be a, a huge investment on the on behalf of NASA. So it's it's nice that some of these things that are not going to be priorities for NASA's sample return thread are going to be picked up by some of these other uh, missions and we'll continue to learn about so many of the other aspects of Mars. So a lot left to learn, a lot left to explore. As you know, the uh, the goal, we've all been told, is uh, we keep focused on getting humans up there. Uh, and all of us at the Planetary Society, I think it's safe to say, look forward to humans walking on the red planet. Those humans are going to have to be protected from radiation, among other things, is curiosity helping us to prepare for for that challenge? I read a little bit about this. Yes, it certainly is. And we've had some exciting new results lately that are directly relevant to keeping humans safe on Mars one day. We have uh, 10 instruments on the rover, and one of them was supported initially by the human exploration part of NASA. 10 years ago, they asked us to fly a radiation sensor. So we can study the uh, amount of high energy radiation, the kind of radiation that, uh, for example, could cause cancer if you're not sufficiently shielded from it. So it's very important for us to measure that at the surface because we've measured it in space before, but Mars, uh, not only you know in the good sense, shields a lot of that radiation just because now you have the planet below you and you're only exposed to sort of half the radiation you get from space when it's coming at you from all directions. But also uh, the opposite, the negative side is that that radiation can interact with the atmosphere of Mars or the rocks on Mars and cause what's called secondary particles that could be more harmful than the initial particles uh, mm. because they might be bigger or slower than those initial particles and more likely to, to cause changes in your, in your body. Uh, we've been measuring that now for nine and a half years. One neat experiment we did recently was got up close to a cliff to figure out if we hunkered next to a cliff, like an astronaut might do someday, how much would that cliff shield us? And importantly, would it shield us or would those secondary particles increase instead and it would be more dangerous to hang out below that cliff? <laughs> and we figured out um, that the, the size of this cliff and the thickness of it was sufficient to actually shield the rover from that radiation. Uh, and so that's an important data point to think about in the future when we're designing habitats for astronauts. I'm also thinking about those little bits of material that could be used to make uh, spacesuits for humans to wear on Mars that are that are on Perseverance. So, uh, you know, that arrow taking us toward that time when uh, we see boots on Mars seems to be uh, getting a little bit closer. I'm looking forward to the day when, oh, human tourists... <laughs> <laughs> or others, explorers, uh, maybe go and visit Curiosity and uh, put a little sign up next to it and salute it for uh, what it did to teach us about this planet and also help prepare the way for, for them. 
and uh, Ashwin, it, it's great to talk to you about that work that is underway. Thank you to you and the entire team. Uh, it is a great pleasure, and uh, we'll continue to follow the mission. Appreciate it very much. It's really exciting, and we're, we're just so glad to keep going. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We are joined again by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He's Bruce Betts, and uh, I wish you could see him. He's doing the most interesting things with his beard. What's left of it, anyway? (laughs) Welcome. They're mostly to amuse you, Matt, since (laughs) not not many people see me, and, and and my kids, so. I wish I could share this picture, and I bet your kids are quite entertained. <laughs> I, I, they're adults, but I think they think it's a little ridiculous, but funny. It's gradually going away. Hey, Bruce, what's not going away? Well, it's complicated, but planets in general not going away, but they are going in and out and around the sky. You know what that devious Venus did? What? It crossed between us and the sun very quickly. And uh-huh. so it went from being in the evening sky a couple of weeks ago. Now it's it's pretty much firmly placed in the morning sky in the pre-dawn east, super bright Venus. Still very low, but pops up within the next week or two. You should be able to see it quite easily. So if it went between us and the sun, but there wasn't a transit, no transit of Venus across the surface? Uh, there probably was, and probably no one predicted it. No, there wasn't a. Tra- <laughs> there, there was not a transit. The two planets don't orbit in exactly the same plane, and it's so far away, and the sun's so far away. You really have to line it up pretty perfectly, which is why you only get a couple transits every, whatever it is, hundred years ish. It's like the moon; you don't get a total eclipse every time it passes between. So anyway, look in the pre-dawn east and you got super bright Venus low on the horizon. Above it to its upper right is Mars. They'll get closer over the coming couple weeks. And above Mars, reddish Mars is the reddish star Antares. The evening sky, Jupiter still holding out over in the west, looking super bright. And Saturn, not as bright, low by the horizon. May see it, may not. By the way, I've determined through scientific observation, we are fully in Northern Hemisphere winter. So I'm assuming Southern Hemisphere summer. (laughs) This, of course, is marked by the easy viewing in the evening of the constellation Orion. Yay. uh, So check out Orion rising in the east in the early evening and hanging out in the south after that. Sirius, brightest star in the sky. It's just, it's a party. It's a winter party or summer party. My fave, Orion. On to This Week in Space History, 1986, Voyager 2 flew past Uranus, our one and only view so far of the Uranian system. Wow, yeah. And I guess we should remind people that that's because the other Voyager spacecraft was diverted from Uranus and Neptune so that it could do that flyby. Wasn't it to get a good view of Saturn or the moons or something? It was to get a good view of Titan. And so they took Voyager 1 in order to get a good view of Titan and the flyby. It, it took it out of the plane of the solar of the planets. And uh, Voyager 2 did that grand tour. It had that special alignment that allowed it to do four planets. And another cool spacecraft, ground craft opportunity, <laughs> landed. The rover landed in 2004 this week wow. and operated for like a gazillion years. <laughs> it sure did. We move on to random space fit. 
Parker Solar Probe. You may have heard of that recently on, I don't know, this show. <laughs> Not only has set records as the closest spacecraft to the sun, tied to that, is sets records every time it goes flying closer to the sun for the fastest spacecraft ever relative to the sun. In its fastest planned periaps in a few years, it'll be 192 kilometers per second or 119 miles per second. You're probably wondering, Matt, if it flew across the contiguous United States west to east from the Pacific to the Atlantic at that speed, how long would it take? Less than 24 seconds. Man, oh man, much faster than anything in uh, low Earth orbit. That's fascinating. Thank you. All right, we move on to the trivia contest, and we asked you about Fraunhofer, or at least that's where we got to the answer. I asked you, who are the main solar absorption lines at visible wavelengths named for? So you split the spectrum, the sun into a rainbow spectrum. You do it well enough, you see a bunch of black lines tied to absorption features in the sun's atmosphere of different elements. Who was that guy that we named it after that I also just told you, so it's not really a surprise? <laughs> Matt, how'd we do? Well, uh, Bo Garner and a whole bunch of other people did really well, but it was Bo who got the nod from random.org this week. I, I believe a first-time winner in Virginia. Full name? Well, actually not full name because he's got one of those German names that goes on and on and on. But Joseph von Fraunhofer, uh, it was good enough uh, for Bo to uh, win this time around. Congratulations, Bo. We're going to send you probably the last one going out, I think, another one of those 2022 International Space Station wall calendars that we have at the office. So uh, we'll uh, ask folks to put that in the mail to you very soon, Bo. Get this from Bo. He heard the show that I did. Uh, we reported on the uh, preparation for the recovery of the Artemis One Orion capsule. Loved hearing about the USS John P. Murtha's potential recovery for the Artemis capsules. He just joined the Navy not too long ago. He says, so now I know where I should try to get stationed in order to claim my connection <laughs> to our missions to the moon. Hey, we'll welcome you to San Diego, Bo. And uh, you know what I'm going to say, right? Thank you for your service. Yes, thank you for your service. And congratulations. <laughs> From Mel Powell in California. He says, I wondered why a great guy who can't pronounce quadrantids would hit <laughs> us with the answer Fraunhofer until I realized that only Matt has to pronounce it. And Bruce just says, that's correct. Well played, Dr. Bretz. That's correct. <laughs> yes, I screwed up in my... Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Although I find, I find Fraunhofer much easier to say than that other thing. Laura Dodd in California said it was over 600 of those solar absorption lines in the visible spectrum that uh, Joe, Joseph, uh, discovered. Joey. <laughs> Joey, Joey, Joey. We got this from uh, retired astronomer Claude Plymate, who has been my guest on the show. He actually wrote quite a bit about Joseph. He says, after a career in solar spectroscopy, I'd better be able to answer this question. Uh, von, von Fraunhofer invented the modern spectroscope using a slit and prism. And he, like I said, he said a whole bunch of other great stuff. We just don't have time to read. But he adds, if George Ellery Hale is credited as the father of solar astrophysics, Fraunhofer should then at least be known as its grandfather. Works for me. We also heard from Claude's wife and fellow solar astronomer, Teresa, 
She says they got to look through a telescope that Fraunhofer made during a, uh, a visit to Germany. Wow. Speaking of Germany, Torsten Zimmer, named after Fraunhofer, is the Fraunhofer Society for the Advancement of Applied Research, which has 75 institutes and about 29,000 employees. So they really honor the guy there. Carlos Perez, also in Germany. There's a Fraunhofer Institute in uh, Carlos's uh, hometown of Erlangen, and one of his best friends works there. Sadly, he uh, came to a, a, a poor ending, did Joe. We're told by Michael Unger in British Columbia, died due to poisonous heavy metal gases or vapors. He liked to work with that stuff, uh, measuring the spectra. Unger speculates that it might have been Iron Maiden, but he probably would have preferred Rainbow. <laughs> I was going to make a heavy metal joke, but I thought it was in poor taste. It, of course it is. So maybe. Uh, too soon? <laughs> the, the man passed away just almost 200 years ago. Full respect. Here is an interesting bit of poetry from Jonathan Gorbach in Virginia. He's a two-year listener. First time he's entered because he said he's been waiting for you to give him a contest where the answer is a proper noun of six syllables so that he could <laughs> so he could submit a double dactyl poem i had to look it up i'm sorry to say it was it's a form of poetry uh, invented in 1951 here's the poem higgledy piggledy joseph von fraunhofer pointed a prism at heavenly orb thus he invented the heliospectroscope lines show the atoms the sun's gases absorb wow You've been double dactylized. <laughs> I was double dactylized. We also got a, a really terrific poem from Gene Lewin in Washington, but it's too long to read. Thank you, Gene, though. Uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, we'll close with this one from Dave Fairchild. Joseph von Fraunhofer noticed some dark over top of the sun's spectral lines. Photosphere gases were blocking as light passes dragging the photons behind. It was absorption, and there was no option. The energy couldn't get by. The sun was committed, but light it submitted got sucked up by gas in the sky. <laughs> it sounds a little like a, a Mother Goose rhyme. Oh. <laughs> a weird Mother Goose rhyme, but a, but a nice one. Man, that was a lot of stuff. And by the way, thank you to all of you who wished us a happy new year. Uh, the same to you folks as well. Here's Bruce with a new question. What planets, what planets in our solar system have higher, quote, surface, unquote, gravity than Earth? What planets have higher surface gravity than Earth? For the giant planets, which have no surfaces, use the gravity at the one bar pressure level, which is about one atmosphere. And go to planetary.org slash radio contest to get us your entry. You've got until the 26th. That would be January 26th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer and possibly win yourself a planetary society kick asteroid rubber asteroid. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and think about, think about, think, <laughs> think about, I, I, what should they think about, Matt? Uh, they should think about answering our survey while there's still time. <laughs> at planetary.org slash survey. Tell us what you think of Planetary Radio and Bruce getting totally lost in his thinking. Thank you and good night. Von Betzenberg out. 
That's uh, Von Betzenberg. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Sounded like we planned that survey mention, didn't it? Nope. But that's not the fault of associate producers Marco Verda and Jason Davis. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.